we badly need in the West a counterbalance to the idea, um, which I think sort of maybe in the in the medieval period became uh, current that sacrifice is getting God to not be angry with us. Sacrifice is the motions that we go through in order to earn forgiveness or in order to at least sort of satisfy. Uh, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Okay, welcome everyone to the Orthodox Christian Podcast, and today I am speaking with Father Herman Fields. We've had a couple other discussions in the past, but today we're talking specifically about liturgical theology in relation to sacrifice, and uh, these are some things that are maybe a little bit foreign to people initially, but they don't need to be. So, Father Herman, why don't you give us a a brief introduction of what liturgical theology is, and uh, then take us away. Well, thank you again for having having me be back. Um, I, when we get into the study of liturgical theology, for example, if you ever take a class, uh, introduction to liturgical theology, one of the first things they're going to do is give you an article, uh, maybe two, three, four articles, uh, asking the question, "What is liturgical theology?" Uh, maybe they'll give you uh, the first one by Father Alexander Schmemann, and then others. Um, and uh, I have my own answer to that question, which kind of leads, leads us uh, naturally forward into what we're going to talk about. Um, and this is far from a majority opinion, but I think that as Orthodox Christians, it is only profitable for us, uh, especially for lay people, um, to, to really focus on Orthodox liturgy. Because what we mean by liturgy, especially what, what we practice, the understanding of liturgy that is demonstrated in our practice is very different from other denominations. Uh, it reflects the the difference in our faith as well. Um, and so, you know, uh, we're talking before about, you know, if you're going to have uh, commentators on different sports, you know, baseball and a football commentator uh, talking about sports, um, it, it's not, you're going to be creating more, more confusion. So by all means, read those articles. But um, um, I think I, what I think of as liturgical theology has to do with uh, Orthodox liturgy, reading Orthodox liturgy, not primarily, I think, you know, to start off with, uh, understanding what the Eucharist is and what we're doing in, in the divine liturgy um, by reading the text and seeing what they have to say about what we're doing, because uh, they say a whole lot about what we're doing. Um, uh, for better or for worse, a whole lot of the that is said in, by priests in silent prayers, but those aren't secret. They're available uh, to read um, and uh, to see what you know. What's the function of liturgy? What what's happening to us uh, when we're in liturgy? What, how does that serve for our salvation? Um, and uh, read along in Lent, all the Lenten services. Uh, read along in Vespers if you have matins. This is this is a school of liturgical theology. So um, that that's kind of my introduction to the subject, as it were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And <clears throat> um, it it seems like liturgy. You can compare it to to a game as as you were doing, and that um, 
it's really helpful to practice before the actual game. And these things are fruitful, but the game is still where the main action happens. And so liturgical theology is where we are, as you said, studying and looking intently at the actual words and actions that are performed when the community gathers to worship God. And this is very uh, beneficial. And yet the emphasis is still placed on when you gather together. And then just to, to pull in that other uh, reference that you made, it wouldn't be very helpful to um, then go and compare all the different games necessarily or to get all the commentators from baseball together and, and, and football. And so this is similar to going around to like other Christian groups and saying, well, what do you mean by liturgical theology? What do you mean by um, the significance? Like, what is the significance when you gather together and worship? Like, they're going to have a different take on that because they have different words that are being used. They have different actions that are being performed. The actual structure of the building is set up differently. And so it's just more fruitful in this conversation to focus specifically on orthodoxy and what the orthodox do, because it is unique. And we're not going to get very far by looking at just the broader um, Christian world. Is that a fair summary? Yep. Yeah, I, I read one. I, I'll, I'll give you one of the most obvious examples that I can think of, which is I, I read an article um, uh, on liturgical theology written by uh, somebody in the mainline Protestant church that is still gone in a very sort of non-traditional direction liturgically. And, um, and it's sort of a seminary. Um, and each week, uh, one or two or a small group of students would sort of design a service uh, because their liturgical tradition really kind of is a, a uh, buffet table of various things. And they would sort of invite you, come to my service, because they were kind of proud of what they were going to create. Um, and this teacher was sort of lamenting how sort of uh, vacuous and, and uh, um, the, the liturgical sort of were. Uh, that that just doesn't exist in orthodoxy. That, that that doesn't exist, and that says something about what we think. We have a lot of words, uh, a lot of lot of words in in our church. It's always been that way. Um, we're being told something. We're being told to say something, um, and uh, and it's not of our own making, uh, and it's not ad hoc. That that says tons about what we think about liturgical theology. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also about God in the sense that God is the one who is hidden, um, perhaps the most hidden in the world, and it necessitates revelation like God has to open himself to humanity for us to engage with God properly. And so it's never something that we're just building up into the sky, but we need to cooperate. There's always the need for that. And yet it's God who's reaching down to us and revealing himself to us. And so I think this also gets the notion that we're not just inventing something. It's not like the gospels are just invented. It's actually God coming to humanity. And the same is true with um, the liturgy, even though we are cooperating with it at the same time. Yeah. I mean, uh, God did not write our Sunday morning liturgy, but the church did. And it's the church that has received the Holy Spirit together. The gathering of the church has, has received the Holy Spirit and the church uh, ha under the leadership has created uh, these various liturgies and these various uh, texts. So in that sense, yes, it is. And for the vast majority of us, we will never uh, write any anything that will end up in the liturgy. <clears throat> Maybe uh, a troparian to a newly recognized saint or something like that. But um, it is revealed to us, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So you wanted to talk about sacrifice, and I think you also wanted to talk about the importance of um, having rote prayers or things that are actually passed down to us and forms that we um, work in ourselves into rather than working the forms into into us. Um, so wherever you want to start, let's take it away. Sure. Um, I want to start by plugging a book, which I haven't read and I don't profit at all from from uh, plugging, but this is called Welcoming Gifts, Sacrificing the Bible in Christian Life by uh, Father Jeremy Davis. Um, uh, full, what should I say, all cards on the table. Uh, Father Jeremy is the uh, protosingulus of my archdiocese and is the uh, assistant of my metropolitan, but uh, he hasn't asked me to, I'm not trying to get brownie points, um, but it's a fantastic book. I believe it was his uh, master's thesis at uh, St. Econ's, uh, and it's uh, published by Ancient Faith, and it is, I, I really recommend it a lot. Um, and uh, and the reason he writes welcoming is because he, he, his whole his whole sort of thesis in the book is to show how sacrifice is joy um, and fellowship. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if he says it directly, but I'll say it directly, that we badly need in the West a counterbalance to the idea um, which I think sort of maybe in the in the medieval period became uh, current that sacrifice is getting God to not be angry with us. Sacrifice is the motions that we go through in order to earn forgiveness or in order to at least sort of satisfy. Um, and it couldn't be farther from the truth uh, in the history of how sacrifices have evolved and, and what the Bible says about it and what people, you know, who were doing sacrifices say about what they were doing. Uh, and as a as a really good example from uh, Father Jeremy here, he is quoting um, from uh, Philo of Alexandria, who lived in, you have to help me out here, I think it's the 300s uh, BC. So this is a Jew That's in a large Jewish uh community in Alexandria, which was a Greek-speaking city. So he, he is in a place where Jews are actively engaging with the Greek intellectuals and philosophers of their time and trying to uh, explain Judaism to them and uh, have, have sort of a dialogue in there. And, um, and so he, he talks about how, uh, in order that God might honor those who have sacrificed, for the worth of those fed, that is the priests, the priests are the ones who sort of eat the meat of a lot of sacrifice, all right? The worth of those fed honors those who feed them. That is, if you're, you're honored by being able to contribute food to, to feed the, the priests, and in order that they might believe most firmly that God is gracious toward those unto whom repentance of sins comes, for he would not call his ministers and attendants to share in such a meal unless he had granted complete pardon. So it's sort of implying that sacrifice is what happens when we have a relationship with God, uh, not that which sort of brings about or earns it. Um, uh, uh, There's just one example. He also talks about how uh, there, there is a a passage, I, I won't find it here, um, but there's a passage from the Bible that he quotes where uh, 
people are being admonished not to participate in the the uh, revelry of the uh, uh, Canaanite neighbors, but they put different things in one list, and one is sort of uh, drinking and feasting and sacrifice. Uh, so revelry, sacrifice was a natural part of a list of things which uh, come out of joy and celebration. Um, and uh, and so it's natural also the sacrifice sort of evolved from being a meal, a fellowship uh, in, in, in where, you know, you might give a portion to the gods and invite the gods to your meal to, in order to solemnize it or make, give it a, a higher meaning. Um, or, uh, and you can do this, for example, by pouring out uh, some of the blood of the animal that you've killed. Uh, if you were to slaughter an animal for your guest, like Abraham slaughters a, a lamb, I believe it is, for, uh, for his uh, three guests who come come to visit him, the three angels, um, you don't have a fridge and you can't keep some of the meat for leftovers. Um, you're going to eat the whole thing. And you, it's good if you have a bunch of people, otherwise you waste meat. And when you, when you uh, kill and slaughter an animal, and if you're, you know, a nomad uh, or agrarian, you're you're killing something of very high value. A, sh a sheep can grow up and provide you with wool many times over, you know, for years. Uh, a cow or an ox can pull your plow, can pull a cart, can provide you with milk. Sheep can provide you with milk. So you're giving up something can, that really can produce a lot for you, um, and you're really not going to do that often and you're going to, it's going to be a big deal and you're going to invite your friends and it's going to be something solemn. Um, and uh, people would have very, various ways of sort of directing part of the meal towards God or towards the gods, uh, but it's joy. Uh, and, and in Genesis, when, when uh, Abraham sort of solemn, solemnizes or somehow uh, has uh, he, maybe he's moved and he wants to assure himself and God wants to assure him, God's still with me. I, I'm a stranger in a strange land. He will sacrifice uh, an animal to, to solemnize a covenant. Um, also in Genesis, um, Laban and Jacob part ways. Uh, if you don't know, if you don't have ears to hear, uh, go read Genesis, especially chapters, uh, say, 25 to 31. But th this is a father-in-law and a son who have a difficult relationship. And uh, son-in-law, father-in-law, son-in-law. And son-in-law, Jacob, uh, takes his two wives, who are daughters of the father-in-law, and all his servants and all his stuff, and just kind of leaves in the middle of the night. And the father-in-law comes and says, what? You've just left. Are we not friends? What's going on? And so in order to show their goodwill to each other, um, they do something which I think is remarkable. Uh, they uh, build a pile of stones, okay, and, or make a pile of stones, and they said, uh, this is a heap. Here is a pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap. My side to harm me, and may the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of 
of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the fear of uh, name and the fear of his father Isaac. And he offered a sacrifice there on in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal after they had eaten. They spent the night there. Early in the next morning, they kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And he left and returned home. So we have this idea of a memorial in the sense of here's a reminder, here's a physical thing that that is is a record and a, a reminder visible that we have fellowship, we have you know good fences make good neighbors, I guess is what they were saying. Uh, and and that we're the family and we we have and this word memorial, Jesus says uh in when he institutes a, the Eucharist, do this in memory of me. And depending how you would translate it from Greek, it could also do this as my memorial. It's anamnesis, anamnesis, memorial. So uh, this is a good way of sort of indicating where the, the direction that a sacrifice would go in. Um, and there's also, we use this word sacrifice or offering uh, in English a great tragedy is that we use one word for uh, that, which is, I'm going to look here, uh, a whole number of words in Hebrew and in Greek. Chatat, uh, taroma, uh, nadeva, korban, which we know from the korban, we've heard that in the New Testament. Zachim, mincha, Ishe, uh, Minacha, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, Ola, that's the whole burnt offerings. Sheret, uh, uh, and Nesech, uh, and there's more. So, how many? I must have been seven, eight words, uh, all of which could translate as sacrifice and or offering. Um, and it sort of makes it, it's, it's understandable that people think that sacrifice is one thing. Uh, we know what it does. It does this. Uh, and uh, Christ is, we said in our last podcast, is likened to uh, a sacrifice. By the way, there's a few different ones where the blood of the sacrifice gets taken into uh, uh, the, uh, and, and sprinkled on the, uh, I believe, on the uh, uh, lid of the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant. But I think people said Christ is the equivalent of the atonement sacrifice. That's what sacrifice is. That's how Christ fulfills sacrifice, period. Uh, it's not enough. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that's sort of an indication of where uh, a beginning of understanding sacrifice. And in, 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 uh, it's very easy to see, I think, if you're familiar with Orthodox liturgy, that, um, yeah, we have a lot of that stuff in, in the Orthodox liturgy. A fellowship, a meal, the Eucharist. Uh, we have uh, peace between people, a kiss of peace. Uh, the, we call uh, the, uh, the the divine liturgy. We say a sacrifice of peace, um, a mercy of peace, a sacrifice of praise. Excuse me. Um, we, we have that sort of covenant between us and God. Um, 
you know, we, we say the creed and we belong. We we have baptism in our uh, chrismation to show that we really, truly have entered into the people of God. We're the newly enlisted soldiers of God. We're children of God. Um, uh, the priest says in silent prayer before, right before the great entrance, you know, cast me not out from among thy children uh, or servants. Um, so, so it's easy to see in other liturgical texts how how all of these different things um, uh, find their way in. So, so we need to understand sacrifice in, in terms of joy, uh, fellowship, and a, a much a much broader sense in order to to understand our the, liturgical theology and vice versa. Right, right. <clears throat> and so, if I'm if I'm summarizing there, it sounds like uh, typically when we use the word sacrifice in English. There's a notion of uh, difficulty or pain that is inherent because we are giving up something of value for something of greater value, but that greater value is typically in the future. And this is something that we do in life. But um, when we're talking about sacrifice in terms of what's going on when we gather to worship God and why is this language of sacrifice used, it has maybe more the sense of something that is done in celebration. So when you have a barbecue, you are using things of high quality but it is celebratory and so it's not that you're just you know giving up something valuable and then you have to look forward to a future date where you're going to receive the value but instead it is at the same time and it is something that is joyful and willingly done because you want to participate in the life of god is that an accurate way to talk about it yeah it, when, when you that joy and celebration it, it comes to mind what father tom hopko said which is that uh, when Jesus died and he said, uh, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, that word sabachthani, that, that's a, a, a verb that is only ever used once. And that is the when God tells Adam and Eve that therefore a man will leave, means leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Uh, and so uh, uh, Jesus is saying, God, why have you left me? in a particular way, uh, which Father Tom Hofko interpreted as, why have you, not why, but like, this is painful, but now I'm being married off to my bride, the church, in my death. You know, I'm dying for my bride. I'm being wedded to my bride. So in the the, the I don't know, irony or paradox or the Greek rhetorical word is an antithesis is, it's death and gore and, and, and pain and yet a wedding feast. And he died out of his love for us, uh, and not in order to love us. Um, and and uh, it has completely uh, different meaning if we look at, look at it from that direction that um, the sacrifice comes out of joy and out of relationship. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's a that's a good way to put it as well in terms of how we understand Christ's death and how we relate to God. It's not that we give things up to establish the relationship. It's because the relationship exists that we are giving stuff up so to have the right order for that. And then then our giving things up in the sense of you know the, denying ourselves things and so forth is uh, theosis, participating in the energies of God. It comes out of our our relationship with God and, and, and makes it fuller. So 
That's okay. kind of one of the next things I wanted to just explain. The one one of the many Greek words for sacrifice um, is uh, zoron, which is a gift. Um, and like Jesus said, uh, if you uh, realize as one of someone you know has something against you when you're going to sacrifice, leave the gift by the altar and first go be reconciled, and then go offer your gift. So the, I think offering. I'm going to offer you, a, you know, something to eat when you come to my house. It's a gift. Um, I I thought one time was, well, what about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? You know, it's a gift to us, but what, it, you know, these things that we do in our gifts of the Holy Spirit um, and our fruit, that's another word that you can use for uh, sacrifice in Greek, is karpoma. Um, uh, and I'm just looking at my list here. That's a way that Holberd offering uh, or uh, ministry is is uh, uh, translated the, the fruit, but the, the first fruits that uh, Cain and Abel Abel gave was fruit. And so the, both the fruits of the spirit and the the gifts of the spirit. These are things we offer to God. Uh, our our love and our joy interesting thing to offer to God and our peace, our patience, our kindness, and our, you know, the gifts of the spirit, you know, to, to offer our uh, uh, ability to speak, you know, we want to be careful when we talk about prophecy and, and tongues and so forth, but our calling, you know, is a gift to give to, to God and to give each other. Um, uh, and that is a wonderful way to expand our understanding of what is sacrifice these gifts and these fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, fruit, by the way, the, the, the concept of fruit in Greek is much wider than in English. Fruit, you know, we apples, pears, bananas. Um, we have a sort of list, a very limited list of things we mean when we say fruit. A fruit in Greek, and especially in Hebrew, means wheat, anything, produce, uh, children uh, are, are fruit, fruit of your Lord's. Uh, when Jesus says that the the uh, you know the sower sows a seed and then you get a harvest and it brings fruit uh, and so forth, so so these are what we're producing and doing. These are our our fruit, our gift offerings to God. Uh, right, right. So <clears throat> it has the sense of propagation more so than the narrowly like scientific definition of fruit. Yeah, and then scientific within the English sort of. Uh, um, semantic range of the word you know uh, so one word can mean a certain number of things in any given language and in english the semantic range of the word is much more limited than it is in hebrew uh, or in greek uh, mm -hmm. so. okay so that, that's that's helpful to frame it were, were there other kind of big themes that you were wanting to talk about in terms of uh liturgical theology and, and sacrifice well it, it's interesting to look uh Look at the divine letters and sort of see uh, what uh, well what it says about sacrifice in, in terms of what we're doing there. But um, uh, I'll just give a few examples. Um, uh, for example, um, we this is a silent prayer uh, that the priest prays uh, uh, shortly after the great entrance. We come in with the the bread and wine, put them on the altar, um, and 
And as they're like on the altar, and uh, the the priest will say, um, uh, "Well, that that our God who loves mankind, having accepted them on His holy and celestial and mystical altar, as an offering of spiritual fragrance, may in return send down upon us the divine grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit." Let us pray. Um, and uh, there, well, there's so much there. Uh, the offering a spiritual fragrance, or, or, or this is one particular translation of the liturgy I'm reading here, but that's the same thing we, we say when we offer the incense. Um, uh, and uh, he's sending down his divine grace and the gift, gift of the Holy Spirit upon us. Uh, so we're offering what we offer, and God sends down upon us what he has his body and blood uh, we're not sacrificing christ on the altar uh, nobody sacrificed christ he offers himself um, we are receiving him and we have offered a bloodless sacrifice it says over and over um, and uh, that's another thing this is one of the silent prayers the priest says is that uh, you are he that offers and is offered um, that we're entering into christ's sacrifice um, and participating. Um, I think, uh, well, also that it's, you, you have granted your humble and unworthy servants to stand even now at this hour before the glory of your holy altar and to offer sacrifice and to, uh, the worship that is due and to offer praise. So offering worship, sacrifice, and praise because God has counted us worthy and invited us uh, to do it. So, um, right. It, it does remind it's, me of like the, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, 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 we're being invited to participate in Christ's sacrifice. All, all sacrifice is first and foremost, Christ uh, slain before the foundations of the world, the crucified one. Uh, what we're doing is a participation in that uh, timeless event. It's not another sacrifice. It is uh, another manifestation of that timeless sacrifice okay so uh there's there's two things that um come up for me there one is that um this notion of god giving himself and we giving ourselves this is very similar to marriage and that this is a sort of dominant metaphor that's used throughout scripture to describe the relationship of god and his people and it's interesting to me uh, on a couple fronts so um, generally, you'll hear this, especially in, in the prophets in the Old Testament, where they'll talk about God being the husband or the spouse of Israel, and that even the mark of the covenant between God and his people is circumcision. And so it is something that marks what, what you could say is like the sexual organ that is used in um, marriage that is uniting God and his people. And you don't want to like overdo the metaphor but there is a strong connection between um like faithfulness to god and marriage uh, versus unfaithfulness to god and adultery that's really drawn out in the old testament and i think maybe part of the reason for this is um god is again hidden and in marriage the hidden things are made known to the people in the marriage like the two spouses are revealing themselves to each other in a very physical way. And 
again, this is metaphorical language, so we have to be careful, but um, it is similar in the sense that when God and humanity are engaged together and connected, they are revealing themselves to each other to a certain extent. And so it seems that, again, marriage can be thought of as a sacrifice and the gift that we're offering isn't something external, but it's our very selves that we're giving to God and then vice versa, that Christ is giving his self to us. Would you think that that's a, a fair way to characterize it? Father? That's fantastic. That I, I really love that. I want to start taking notes. Ha! <laughs> remind myself what you're saying. That, that's really, that's really lovely. Yeah, that uh, I, I agree 100. That that uh, we're, you know, the the adultery that you talked about that uh, God describes it, uh, the people of Israel as being adulterers and toward, towards Him. Well, what are they doing? They're going to the uh, to the pagan gods and, and offering sacrifices to them. They're allying, the sacrifice means they're allying themselves. They have an alliance with those gods as opposed to an alliance with, with uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Um, and so, yes, there, there is a total, uh, uh, you know, also the circumcision is an entrance into the, the, the company of those who sacrifice. You know, it's the first sacrifice in the sense that uh, Christ and uh, other male Israelites would be taken to the temple, and this would be, um, of course, to them. But uh, uh, and and their their mothers would, you know, come to the temple to uh, at the end of a period of cleansing after childbirth to enter back into the company of those who worship at the uh, at the temple. Um, and, and we have, I don't know exactly what you can say corresponds to circumcision. Uh, but in our tradition, after after baptism and uh, chrismation, we do a tonsil, clipping a little pieces of the hair off of the baby, or whoever has been baptized, baby or, or adult, and uh, say this this is their first offering uh, to God. Uh, similar, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I I really like that uh, how, how you woven deeper. Uh, uh, a depth to that image of marriage, uh, uh, and uh, oh. one other is, thing that <clears throat> sorry, Christ Himself is the one who is offered at the at the wedding feast. By the way, Go on. yes, yeah, yeah, and so, so one other thing that I just wanted to to draw out a little bit is this notion of higher time. And so you're talking about how the sacrifice um, is one event and it's Christ's sacrifice uh, when he gives himself to the church and there's this marriage between Christ and the church on the cross. And um, sometimes when people are looking into orthodoxy and they hear the language of sacrifice, um, they will think that because we have multiple liturgies and because these are um, participating in the one sacrifice of Christ, that these are actual uh, multiple sacrifices and they'll have sort of a, a competitive view of God and the world where um, God's glory needs to be protected and anything that humans do is sort of jeopardizing that. And it's a very non-sacramental way to, to look at things. But I think one of the ways to sort of explain in that situation is that, um, you know, we, we typically think of time as chronological and just proceeding forward on this uh, horizontal plane, but there is this vertical aspect to time as well, or there's these higher moments of time where it's as if um, they are more concentrated or more specific or more important. And uh, in the last podcast, we were talking about Christ as the center of all things. And so it's not 
just that time is chronological, but it's also Christocentric. And so when we come to um, celebrate the liturgy and participate in the body and blood of Christ, or to hear the words of the gospel um, read, that it is as if we are hearing Christ himself speak. It is as if we are participating in Christ. Well, and it's actually more than as if. We are actually hearing Christ speak. We are actually participating in Christ because these things are drawn together. And so it's almost like um, the original Pascha or Passover or Easter when Christ gave himself to the church. It's the same event as when we go on Sunday to worship God. And these things are drawn together um, on a higher perspective. And, and for me, that's been a really helpful way to, to visualize it and try to understand how these multiple things can actually be united. Um, and again, do you think that that's a, that's a helpful way to go about it? That, that's exactly, yeah, how, how we need to, that um, uh, when Jesus, you know, ascended into heaven, he didn't just go up there. Um, I really love the, uh, the writings of uh, Father Stephen Freeman about the one story universe. Uh, heaven's the invisible it's all around us and it is time timeless or eternal so that the the, the crucified incarnate uh christ is is eternally present we have icons of the creation where christ walking around as we know him and icons from other sort of perspectives he has his halo with the the cross inscribed in his halo his he is the lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world um, it, and 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 to make your to your point, um, you know, not not only does the the Eucharist become the body and blood of Christ, the Church is the body of Christ in a very in a real way, um, and and when we have one congregation here and one congregation there, and all the thousands and thousands of congregations, each one is not a part of the body of Christ. Each one is the body of Christ. Each one is not a part of the Church. It is the Church. Um, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. Um, and and he's not just saying the gathering, but uh, which it is also the ecclesia, but uh, it, it, so that we have the fullness. Uh, and, and the Eucharist, by the way, is not you're not receiving a part of the body of Christ. Uh, you're receiving the body of Christ. Uh, and, and so th there's this timeless wholeness which gets squished together in a wholeness in in your local church in your local liturgy in your 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 particular uh liturgy today uh at this moment in your particular bread which has become the body of christ and the wine which has become the blood of christ here now um and all priesthood is christ's priesthood whether we're talking about the general priesthood of believers or uh, the ordained priesthood uh all of it is christ's and uh, I think one of the things that sort of shows up as an uh, objection to this or, or uh, people think of immediately when they come to an Orthodox church from the Protestant perspective is that somehow Christ was the last sacrifice. Um, and, and generally thinking about the, the epistle to uh, the Hebrews, um, which talks a lot about how the, the sort of uh, Old Testament, uh, uh, especially the sacrifice and the priests and the temple and so forth are, are made perfect in Christ, they made complete, and, and that Christ is the original, everything else was a copy or, or, or an extension of Christ. And so it doesn't mean that, that Christ is the last in time and that there can be no more. It means there is no other one and everything in all of time is Christ's uh, sacrifice as a participation. 
It's just that that which comes before Christ in time, they didn't know, and they didn't have access to the fullness, uh, and they're waiting for it. Uh, but uh, you know, Christ descends into the, the land of the dead and and, and speaks to those uh, in uh, the dead and raises them up with him when he rises. So so uh, we very much see uh, the the righteous of the Old Testament as as saints, as members of the church, uh, uh, members of the body of Christ, uh, by anticipation of his sort of in, where in history it actually came. Uh, so. Uh, yes, there, there's a timelessness uh, of God, and, and he's not the last in order. He was the, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the only uh, sacrifice, and everything which is not a participation in his sacrifice is not a sacrifice. Yes, yes, <clears throat> and that, that's helpful for unpacking the martyrs and their significance for the early church and then still in the Orthodox Church where they are Christ to us because they are participating in the one sacrifice of Christ. And again, it's not this competitive thing where you just have Christ and you can't have anything else, but Christ is the central pattern. And then that pattern is um, instantiated throughout history as people cooperate with the Holy Spirit and they become little Christs. And this is what it means to be a Christian. Like it's not, it shouldn't really be surprising, I don't think, because just from like a very plain reading of things, if you want to become a good musician, you practice what the master teaches you and you eventually become that in yourself and you embody it. And so it's the same with being a Christian. It's not just that Christ does these things out here and we're sort of back here looking and by faith doing this mental gymnastic of like, okay, I'm going to accept and now I'm forgiven and whatever else, but it's actually like participating in these things and becoming Christ. And it's never in competition because, um, we are we are participating in the in the central point of of history and and just essentially like repeating it, but it's all gathered into into him. And I think it's what Saint Paul says about like to uh, live as Christ and to die as gain. And so um, there doesn't need to be. I guess my bigger bigger point here is that sometimes there's this false notion that there is like a, a competitive nature between humanity and God, and there doesn't really need to be uh, that competitive nature when we uh, see Christ as as the central point. Especially also if, if we expand the notion of Christ's sacrifice from uh, just his death on the cross, which is, of course, the central, the the thing. That's why I'm wearing a cross. But uh, but his condescension to come down from heaven, the, you know, he was God, but he took on the form of a servant. That's his sacrifice. To, to walk among us, to be human, uh, to teach is a sacrifice, an offering, a gift, a fellowship to us. Uh, healing his calling to us even his you know correction you know woe to you pharisees um you know he, he puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy uh if you love me keep my commandments all of this sacrifice um the eucharist uh you know can be a sacrifice but in a different way jesus wasn't uh, uh, crucified in, at the last supper but it, all of this is sacrifice all of it is uh, uh, and so there is for us to participate in so the the most poignant way of, of uh, describing the bible describes our participation in christ's sacrifices we carry our cross and that's not in order to repeat his death on the cross it's in order to participate in his death on the cross 
uh, and that in baptism we've been baptized into his death and we have put on Christ. But when we put on Christ, we're putting on all of that. His, you know, the the, the presence of God in humanity, but in this case, not us being a God who becomes incarnate, but but by, by God becoming incarnate in us through through the Eucharist, for example, uh, for us to teach those of us who've been called to and and to heal and to serve and all all to be the presence of God in our lives, all are ways of participating in the sacrifice of Christ because his sacrifice was uh, the whole of his work for us, uh, the center of which that defines everything else is, is his death on the cross. Yes. Um, so one, one other thing that I wanted to bring up and kind of run by in this conversation was just the difference between like regular sight and spiritual sight or looking at things plainly and looking at them more intently. And I think uh, one good biblical example of this is in St. Mark's gospel where uh, there's two healings of blind men. And I think it's the second healing of the blind man um, where Christ initially heals him and it's sort of a partial healing. And, and this is expressed in the verbs that are used in Greek, but initially he's just able to see and it, he sees sort of inaccurately. It's like he sees people walking around his trees. Um, perhaps there's more of an allegorical way to take that as well, but uh, regardless, he doesn't see clearly. And then later uh, after that, Christ uh, does something else to, to heal him and restore his sight. And then it says that he sees everything clearly. And the verb that's used is more like to like gaze intently at something or to study something. And so I think that um, with a lot of the actions and the prayers and just our life as Orthodox Christians, we can, we can see things in two ways. And we can see things very plainly as just say people gathering together on Sunday to do this communal action and basically interpret it in like a secular perspective. Uh, and then there's a deeper way to see things which actually accounts or leaves room for God's action and to see uh, what may be performed that's of higher significance there, that it's not just people gathering together, as great as that is, but it's actually God doing certain things and cooperating with his people. Um, and so this, I think, opens us to the notion of, of sacramentality. And so I, sometimes I don't like using that word because it's sort of like a an in-house word, but I think one way to talk about a sacrament is it's just the place where God and the world connect and that they're both present at the same time. And that on one hand, all of life can be seen as a sacrament in the sense that all things participate in God if they exist. And therefore they're all connected with God to a certain degree, which is lovely. Uh, but then there's also these higher concentrations of God's presence. And so there is still like a hierarchical um, ladder as it were, where there are things that are more significant and more holy and more um, important, like receiving the Eucharist uh, as the body and blood of Christ, which is more sacramental, more, more of a direct connection with God than say, just maybe, maybe being alive. Like if we exist, we participate in God who is existence. And so um, I think that again, in this conversation, that can be a helpful way to kind of frame things because again, in our modern society, it's really easy on the one hand, going back to this previous point to see things as just like empty homogenous time. It's just chronological. There's nothing higher about it. And then it's similarly easy to just interpret the world as like purely physical, purely material and reduce it to that without um, being able to see that there is actually a spiritual reality to things. And then just one other thing that I want to tie in this before throwing it back to you is um, that 
to, to see things in this manner is, is a gift from God. And it's not something that just kind of happens to us uh, of our own accord, but there is um, the necessity for cooperation again, and in terms of like prayer and fasting and tithing to the church. And these are the things that sort of open our eyes because it seems that the human temptation is to just focus on the world, which is a good thing, but to focus so exclusively on it that it blocks out everything out blocks out everything else because we take it as ultimate and we start to turn it into kind of like a like an idol um but when we when we pray and when we fast and when we tithe like these are all little sacrifices as we were talking about and they're ways that we unite with god or or at least like open ourselves up to the possibility of being able to see things in a in a proper way um so i i just wanted to run that by you and and see what you thought of that yeah the absolutely uh agree um i i really like the fact you brought up the the blind man i i've wondered every time we read that verse i wondered if he was blind how did he know what trees look like that he could compare people to trees but uh and you've hinted at some sort of uh, allegorical interpretation of that so i mean interesting to talk about another time but um we're talking about you know when you talk about blindness and then light and seeing in the context, first of all, the New Testament, which is written in Greek to a, a Hellenistic sort of uh, culture, and then also in the uh, our liturgical texts and Treparia and canons and all these things that were uh, liturgical texts have been written, the vast majority of them in Greek. Uh, light, even going back to Plato and his cave, light is wisdom and it's a practical wisdom. This is how you do things. This is how you figure out the way things work so you can do smart things and good things. Uh, that's light uh, and seeing and vision and so forth. Um, and, you know, the Bible is full of that. Uh, that Christ is a light to enlighten the Gentiles uh, and the glory of his people, Israel. Um, well, uh, Nativity was just a few days uh, Christmas. And the the Treparian is I just, I really really love that one uh, and of course I'm uh, I'm gonna probably get it wrong and paraphrase it but it says your your nativity O Christ our God has uh, shown the light of wisdom um, uh, for by it the, those who worshipped stars were uh, sh were taught to worship you the sun of righteousness so uh, and to know you as the, the orient, the place where the sun rises. So we have stars, little tiny specks of light from our perspective out there, and these astrologers who are trying to divine wisdom and how the world works and maybe magic or uh, fortune telling or some misguided form of, of medicine uh, knowledge, which anyway, we had plenty of that in Europe eventually as well. Little tiny specks of wisdom and light and Christ shows up with the sun which you, know, you can stare at the stars for hours and and uh, you can hardly look at the sun for a few seconds uh, that much more light wisdom how to do things the right way how to be good how to be wise uh, is so big in comparison and the, the, we're talking about the church of theology here's, here's the, uh, the the wise men worship the stars, the worshipers, but they were taught uh, to adore uh, Christ, the son of S-U-N. He's also 
S-O-N, but the sun of righteousness that's coming. And so, yeah, we're seeing more and more how to live, how to how to uh, follow Christ, how, seeing the, the nature of things and and the self-revelation of God is takes all of eternity. Um, you know, the the, the effort to be united to the uncreated light of God's energies takes all of eternity. This is why salvation doesn't have an end point. There you're saved in time. Uh, it is ongoing and, and developing eternally because Christ is unending, uncontainable. You know, the sun is a is a uh, is a metaphor for his light in that, but but there will be no need for a sun in heaven because the light of God fills everything uh, in, in, the, uh, in the fulfillment of the kingdom. So uh, I, I, I like that, uh, what you're talking about, the, the light. And two, I, I guess my, my last thing that I sort of prepared to talk about was, um, very much in the same vein, was uh, what, why you would have prayers written down uh, mm-hmm. because that is when I was, before I became Orthodox, for me, the word liturgy meant uh, prescribed and written prayers uh, because the tradition that I belonged to, I grew up in, didn't have that um, and actually sort of scorned it a bit. Um, we had, in our presumption, I suppose, we we just assumed that people who, who read prayers probably didn't really mean it from their heart. Um, who, who are you to determine what people mean from their heart or not? Uh, so that's something I had to sort of uh, be corrected in that thought. But wh- why? why? Why are we, why are we uh, taking these into our mouth and saying these prayers and these thoughts and hearing them and making them our own? Um, and this is sort of my, my way of explaining it. Um, when I ask for something in real, in sort of, that's not the real in life. This pen, pen okay. Uh, you have the pen, Max, and I say, of course, we're we're not in the same room. Uh, can it, may I have the pen? So I'm thinking in my mind about getting the pen. That's one thing. First of all, I, I, I want it. I I say that I I want it. Will you please give it to me? That's second one. And thirdly, if I say it nicely in the right way. Uh, you give it to me, right? So I want it, I say that I want it, and then I have it. Um, In our prayer as Christians, it's the opposite. It's turned around. Because Christ has given us all things. Salvation is, well, we need to work out our salvation. Uh, But Christ has, has overcome the world. He says in Revelation, behold, I've overcome the world. All things are there. So, no matter whether you're saying uh, your own prayers off the top of your head, and by the way, it's fine for Orthodox Christians to pour out their heart to God in addition uh, to to their uh, you know, private prayers. Or, but you're asking for things, really, whether you're asking for, please let me get this job, uh, please help my friend because he's sick. Uh, Christ has overcome the world. And so all things, it's all going to be okay in the end, whether you get the job or not. Uh, what you need is what God will give you, and he, everything's going to be okay. But you should ask for that, and you should pray these prayers. So you've been given something. You, you're taught to ask for that which you've already been given, so that what is first in our experience becomes the last thing in the tr- liturgy, which is you want it. 
when you're teaching yourself to want and to desire what God wants and to desire his, his will in your life uh, so that in the, when it becomes very useful for you to desire his will to be done when you might not otherwise, for example, when you have to make hard choice uh, to do what's right, even though the cost will be great or whatever. No, you've built in with your created. God has created within you. You've allowed him to create within you uh, a pure heart that desires what he wants. And, and uh, we, we hear all these words in the, the, in the different services, um, if you have the opportunity to come to Vespers, come to come to Matins, we call it Orthros, and like and and read along if you can. Listen, Lent will come along sooner or later, and there's fantastic. And learn to want what they're telling you is on offer, and the, what they're giving you words to say that you want it. Uh, it's already been given to you in Christ, uh, but you, it has to become your reality more and more. So this is my sort of. Uh, uh, my conclusion that I've drawn from, from the fact that we're given so many words to say uh, is we're be ta being taught to ask uh, and to, to, to sort of seek out the healing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and it reminds me, again, of the, the fact that in general, we are needing to be healed to see things properly and that the prayers help form us in a particular way that will set us on the right trajectory. And, and it reminds me again of, of learning an instrument because when you go about learning an instrument, you study what has been handed down if you wanna actually become proficient. Like there's people that try to learn instruments and they just ignore all that and they're, they're crummy musicians. But the people that are actually really excellent musicians are the people that have studied the uh, scales and the chords and really uh, immersed themselves in that knowledge and then develop the ability to improvise thereafter. And so I think the, the, the order is very important and it's, it's kind of the same in prayer. Like we're given the structure and the way to pray, the way to like shape ourselves and, and look at the world. And that it's from this that the extemporaneous prayer can flow out of, but we need to know how to pray because it's not something that's just inherent to humans that they know how to approach God and how to to pray and we have to be trained in this and it's like this is our, our little school our, our little catechesis of praying each day with with set prayers that can be um really beneficial and and that as you said it does align our will with god's will and i'm forgetting the, the start of this proverb so maybe you can help me out but it says something like um when like put god in the first place and and he will give you the desires of your heart it has a completely different wording but that's the gist of the first part and and sometimes I think people take that as like, well, if I just do the right things um, to God, like I go to church and fast and whatever else, then he's going to give me the Xbox or the spouse or, or whatever else it happens to be, which is totally backwards because it, it seems to me that when you actually set God in the proper place in your life, um, he's going to give you the desires of your heart and that's going to be him because he is the desire of your heart and everything that's good or beautiful in this life is a participation in God. And so uh, these are like little things that are meant to point us towards God. And, and this gets back to the sacramentality. It's like all the world is connected with God and these things are good, but uh, how much better is it if you just get God himself? And that's why sometimes prosperity, this is a bit of a tangent, but you know, sometimes prosperity can be a bit of a curse because um, surprisingly, it, it can kind of blind us to our need for God. And we can just be satisfied in these lower level things rather than seeking the thing that's 
really valuable. And I think that's why in the gospels, it's the people that have had kind of a crummy life and their world is not in great shape be, that allows them to be open to God. And again, this is a reason why I think suffering is not a good thing in itself, but it can be a way to open us to God. And in that sense, it can be a means to, to a beneficial end. And, and I think we can even thank God for it because of that. Is that uh, a fair way to characterize it, Father? Yeah. The, uh, absolutely. We, we have to learn, you know, we say both in the doxology towards the end of Vespers and in, in Matins, blessed art thou, O God, teach me thy statutes. Teach me your, teach me your commandments. That's in the Psalms, recording the Psalms. Uh, why would we ask God for commandments? You know, uh, when I grew up, it's almost like we, we thought of, well, the Old Testament is full of commandments, but that's the old thing. Jesus came and he, he, he's done away with that. We don't have to, you know, because we don't have to keep kosher and we don't have to uh, actually sacrifice animals and all that. that the commandments is gone. Freedom in Christ. But it, the Psalms said, teach, teach me your statutes. Because learn to desire you know and to to really understand this is this is good this is for our good uh for our well-being that god has pointed us in this way the word the word torah for you know, gets translated as law yeah torah means the showing uh this is the way it comes from the word for see but i'm causing you to see over here this is the way the smart good life-giving for your own good way. Um, holiness is not something that God requires from us. It's something that God wants for us. Um, yeah, so so we're always learning more, more how to desire and, and you'll never you'll never not have those prayers answered um, that, uh, you know, teach me, teach me your statutes. Uh, you know, that'll never not be answered. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to uh, turn to summarizing and then maybe if you want to give a final thought or reflection or uh, any more summary. But essentially, uh, today we've been talking about liturgical theology and how it's connected with sacrifice and um, liturgical theology is the study of what we actually do and say as Orthodox Christians when we gather to pray and worship God. And sacrifice is uh, less something that is about um, pain and more something that is about joy that we um, are uniting ourselves with God in the liturgy and he is uniting himself with us. It is like this marriage. And so the sacrifice is our very self that we are giving and God's very self that he is giving to us. And um, some ways to think about this that can be helpful are um, that time is not just chronological, but it is Christocentric. And so we are gathered up into this higher place where we are united with Christ and encountering Christ in a very real way. And also that there are two ways to see. There's just the physical, regular reality around us, but then there's also the spiritual perception uh, that sees the deeper significance of the events that we are participating in and sees them as infused with God's presence. And the whole world, to some degree, is a sacrament or a means to God that we can connect with God through the entire world and existence because God is the one that exists. And yet there are these places and moments that are higher concentrations of God's presence and the corporate worship or the group um, prayer that happens in the Orthodox Church is one of those places, uh, particularly when we receive the body and blood of Christ, because it is Christ's very self that we are receiving. And it is the whole church that is gathered there. It's not just a piece of the church, because we're, again, being gathered into this central place in time. Um, and the way we can 
sort of prepare ourselves to receive God more fully or to see God more uh, clearly in life. Obviously, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, so it's not just all up to us, but uh, we can do practical things in terms of tithing, like giving 10% of our money or more to the church. This will affect the way we actually perceive reality. Uh, same with prayer, just like a regular habit of praying in the morning and the evening and uh, fasting as well, because the things of the world are good. And fasting, I should clarify, it's like actually giving up food and actually limiting our diet and not eating uh, meat all the time and not eating delicacies all the time because uh, the world is good, but there's a human temptation to make the world the whole and to just totally disregard the heavenly realities. And so um, as a way to not fall into that trap, we give up things of the world as a means to God. And this is what it means to sacrifice, that we use the world as a ladder to God. And this is a joyous thing. It's not a painful thing because all the little things of life that we're giving up, these are participants participations in God and um, God is the real source of what is good and true and beautiful. And so we're always, we're always getting a good deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Um, I, I, when you're talking about, we, we've come back to this a number of times, uh, this sort of uh, uh, vertical time, uh, the, the eternal uh, perspective of time. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of how uh, in Holy Week, uh, the evening of Holy Thursday is the beginning of Holy Friday. Uh, the priest will carry out uh, actual cross in procession in the church to be placed in the center. So we're, we're sort of enacting or remembering Jesus carrying his cross to come to his death. Um, and say, as, as I'm carrying this cross out, uh, I'm saying today he is suspended on the tree who suspended the earth above the water. So the same one who created the world and Put it above the waters he is being hung on the cross above um and they, they, there's a lot more to, but it's because today uh today uh and it's not on the uh you know uh 17th of april uh, 2024 or whatever it is always today that the christ is is uh, uh that his death is a reality uh, which is uh, available to us. Um, uh, we also say uh, a couple days later, Pascha, uh, it is the day of resurrection. Um, it is always, it is always the uh, the, the day of resurrection. Christ is eternally not only the crucified, but the risen one uh, who is uh, everywhere present and fills all things in time as well. Uh, and so this, this vertical time, and we do that once a year on Holy Friday, and we we, we celebrate uh, Pascha in the once we, once a year, but every year, uh, it's it's a reality that sticks with us with us. And we do this sort of going through the events in the Bible. We just celebrated Nativity. We're going to celebrate Theophany here in, in a short, uh, the Baptism of Christ. We're going to go through you know celebrating different events in the history of salvation. But we keep doing it over and over and over because those those realities are need to be a part of our life. Uh, and I, I suppose what we're offering to God is is our time and, as you said, our work. In uh, it, When the Hebrews were leaving Egypt, God told them to, uh, to go to Pharaoh and say, we have to go out to the desert to offer uh, services to God. And the word is like work. Uh, and, and when they come out into the desert, God says, you will slaves which literally in hebrews 
workers. Uh, now you're going to serve me. Here's work services for you to do uh, for me. Liturgy means the work of the people. Uh, it also means more. Uh, but we're given stuff to do uh, for our sake. Uh, to to have a job, to have a calling, to have uh, we we need to to participate in the in the work of Christ uh, in His work. He worked and then he rested on the seventh day, on the Sabbath from his work. Uh, his his work is his his sacrifice for us. That we're we're called to participate and then we're also uh, participating in His eternal rest. Um, so there is absolutely a. a, a timelessness to the the work that Christ calls us to do together with him. Hmm. Well, that's a lovely place to conclude. So, uh, Father Herman, I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to thank you again for your time. Uh, I think it's been a productive conversation and I believe it will be helpful to others, God willing, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much for having me. Hey guys, thanks for checking out that episode of the Orthodox Christian Podcast. If there is a question you have about Orthodox Christianity, there's a link to a Google form in the video description that you can check out and submit your question through. Also, if you received some kind of value from this episode, I would encourage you to share it with one friend or a family member. And in the meantime, I hope that you have a peaceful week. Take care.